You know, back in the 1980s, there was a massive, and in my opinion, necessary explosion in the American church known as the Lordship Controversy. The Lordship Controversy. You could tell by the name of the controversy that at the heart of the debate was the Lordship or the authority of Christ. But really, it was bigger than that. It was broader than that. See, at the end of the day, the entire debate was about what authentic saving faith actually looks like. And how sovereign grace actually operates in the life of a true believer. In other words, does authentic faith reveal itself in life change and transformation? Does grace and genuine salvation simply cancel the guilt for the sins of the past or or does it do more than that does it does that grace also awaken renew and transform a sinner from the inside out that's the question in other words is obedience to the word of christ however imperfect it may be is obedience necessary to prove that one's faith is real that's the question people began to notice. People began to be alarmed by a particular kind of theology, a particular kind of teaching and preaching that was filling American churches, like what Spurgeon smelled in England in the 1800s, and like Bonhoeffer witnessed in Germany in the 1940s, and Lloyd-Jones in England. Namely, a kind of easy believism, a cheap grace, a name-it-claim-it kind of faith where one could claim all the saving benefits of Jesus Christ, but where authentic life change and transformation was simply optional. You understand, there were well-respected, well-known, popular pastors and and theologians promoting a kind of theology that claimed that although the fruit of holiness and obedience would be really great if you had it, it wasn't really actually necessary to prove that your salvation was authentic. In fact, some said that a a person can live like an unsaved person for years and still have complete assurance that their salvation was real. In fact, the same author said, whose name you would know if I said it, he said this, a believer may utterly forsake Christ And come to the point of not believing and still be assured that their salvation is genuine and that they're going to heaven. The problem with that is, the problem with that is, none of that is in the Bible. None of that matches up with the Scripture's own testimony of the nature of sovereign grace. Because how sovereign grace operates in the life is in highly imperfect, but nevertheless undeniable manifestations of obedience and holiness and life change and transformation, which is exactly, by the way, what John reveals in the text. That faith is tangible. That salvation is visible. That true life change and transformation is, however imperfect it may be, it is inevitable. The reason why he does, the reason why this is a focus for him, is because there were some creepy, new-agey con men who snuck into the church and said the exact opposite. 
a smooth-talking, undercover cult group had infiltrated the church and caused real confusion about the doctrine of salvation. They claimed this secret knowledge from Christ that called into question some of the most foundational truths of the Scripture. And one of the things they claimed, believe it or not, was that holiness and obedience are optional. They had this... They had this cheap grace theology that didn't include real transformation of the human soul, that authentic salvation did not reveal itself in joyful submission to the word of Christ. And John gets wind of this garbage blowing through the church, and in response, he writes a letter, this letter, in which he unfolds all the tangible evidence of what it looks like when you truly have salvation, when one truly has eternal life. And imperfect though it may be, authentic faith is tangible. Authentic salvation, John says, displays itself in ever-increasing conformity and obedience to the word of Christ. And where that does not exist, John says, salvation isn't real. Which means John's playing hardball this morning. The gloves come off for the apostle of love. Why? Because the stakes are just too darn high to cater to people's feelings. Because what's at stake is eternal souls living forever with God. And what that requires is what one may call adult conversation. Let me just level with you here. I, I know that some of you really hate sermons like this. I know that some of you, you fidget and you fret and you tremble over your souls constantly. You overanalyze every motive. You're too introspective. You miss the forest of grace because you fixate so deeply on the individual trees of your sin and failure. And as a result, you fail to see the legitimate work of Christ that he is doing in your life. You fret and you worry because you have not yet learned to trust the full, saving, redemptive power of Jesus Christ. And I just want you to know, John will free you this morning. He will liberate you to fully enjoy the salvation that is yours by faith in Jesus Christ. Having said that though, some of you do not fidget and fret over your souls nearly often enough. You don't ask yourself the hard questions. You're too easy on yourself. You're not nearly introspective Enough. You have not scrutinized your life to the degree that you should. You don't grab yourself by the neck and make you look at your own heart to see, that, to, to examine if your salvation is really, truly, actually authentic. And I just want you to know that John will help you also. Firmly and graciously, he will shepherd your soul to help you determine if you are a true believer or if you are a make-believer. And so here we go. Tough and tender treatise on what tangible faith in Christ actually looks like, and here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from our text four dynamics. Four dynamics. Four dynamics that either confirm or deny our profession of faith in Christ. Four dynamics that either confirm or deny our profession of faith in Christ. And dynamic number one is this. First, Compliance with the commands of Christ 
reveals the knowledge of Christ. Compliance with the commands of Christ reveals the knowledge of Christ. Because do not forget what John is doing here in chapter 2. In the first two verses of chapter 2, you remember this, John put Christ on display as the Renaissance man of eternal life, didn't he? A do-it-all Savior who has done it all for sinners like us and who supplied in and by Himself every remedy for the dilemmas caused by the virus of sin. He is our advocate with the Father. He is our propitiation before the Father. The wrath is gone. The guilt is gone. We are saved not just because God says we're saved, but we are saved because Christ moment by moment intercedes for us before the Father. That's verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 through 6, however, displays the tangible, real, genuine, visible, authenticating realities that demonstrates if we truly have salvation. And look at the evidence that John supplies. Look at verse 3. He says, And by this we know. That we have come to know him if we should keep his commandments. Do you see that? By this. By this we know that for certain that we have come to know Jesus Christ. Namely, if, if we keep his commandments. That's how we know. In other words, conformity, compliance to the commands of Christ is the tangible proof and evidence that our salvation is genuine and it is real. But isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting to you the terminology that John uses to describe the Christian life? He says, we have come to know him. That's an interesting way to describe the Christian life, isn't it? We know Christ. In fact, this is one of 13 different ways that John uses to describe what it means to be a Christian. 13 different ways. The love of God is perfected in us. We have fellowship with Him. We are in Him. We abide in Him. The love of the Father is in us. We have passed out of death into life. We have seen Him. God has given us eternal life. We have the Son. All complementary ways of saying the exact same thing. And here He says, we have come to know Him. Which is staggering, isn't it? That John frames the entire experience of the Christian life in terms of knowing the second person of the Trinity. We know Christ. And we know this isn't mere book knowledge or theory. This isn't just facts or data. Rather, this is a living, satisfying, relational connection to the Lord Jesus Christ by the Word, through the Spirit, granting us access to Jesus Christ as the treasure of our souls. We know Jesus Christ. That is what it means to be a Christian. And the question we have to ask is, have you come to know Christ? I don't merely mean do you affirm the historicity of Christ, which you totally should. I don't mean do you affirm the ontological existence of Christ, which you totally should. But I mean do you trust Him and do you treasure Him? 
Do you depend on Him and do you delight in Him? Do you seek Him and do you savor Him as the all-surpassing treasure of infinite worth and value? Because that is what it means to know Him. The question is, how would you know if you did? How would you know if you did know Christ? If you did trust Him and treasure Him, if you did depend on Him and delight in Him, if you did seek Him and savor Him as the highest treasure of your soul, how would you know? And John tells us exactly what that is. Look at the text. And by this, by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. That's how we know. That's how we know that our faith is real and that we are not imposters, namely if we keep his commandments, which is interesting, isn't it? Because think about it, the entire discussion about whether our salvation is legitimate or counterfeit is not dependent upon our feelings or even our experiences, but our current relationship to the commands of Christ. And by commands, he means the word of Christ. He means scripture. You see, there is no discussion about authentic Christianity apart from the word of Christ being at the center of the conversation. Why? Because the only objective, verifiable way to evaluate authentic salvation is not our feelings or emotions or even our private experiences, but rather the quality of our connection to Holy Scripture. I mean, you understand that one cannot live in casual disregard of the word of Christ and have any assurance that their salvation is authentic. In fact, it's, it's exactly the opposite. Authentic, genuine, saving faith reveals itself in the word of Christ having the supreme and central place in our life and in our affections. So you can't have one without the other. How you feel about and respond to the word of Christ is exactly how you feel about Christ himself. And yet the question is, what does that actually look like in one's life? What does it look like? Well, John says that if we have truly come to know him, we will keep his commandments. That's a big if, isn't it? That's a scary if. Because what does he mean, keep commandments? Does he mean perfectly, regularly, customarily, frequently? I mean, is there any margin for error here? Is there any grace for our failures here? I mean, how much disobedience are we allowed before we should begin to question our own salvation? What does it mean to keep the commandments of Christ? And when you stand back and you look at John's letter as a whole, John tells us exactly what it means to keep his commandments. In fact, in fact, John tells us that keeping the commandments of Christ is not a matter of box-checking superficiality that merely goes through the motions. He doesn't mean begrudging compliance with a list of demands when we'd much rather be toying with sin. Rather, by keep his commandments, John means three things. John means three things about what it means to keep the commandments of Christ. When you stand back and look at the letter as a whole, this is what we see. He means highly imperfect, but ever increasing conformity to the commands of Christ that is one, motivated by hope. Two, produced by love. And number three, 
dependent on Christ. That's the nature of true holiness. That is obedience. That's his definition of, of holiness. When you stand back and look at the letter, it's patterns, patterns of obedience motivated by the hope of Christ's return. Chapter 3, verse 3. He means, he means the supernatural holiness that is the supernatural overflow of our love for God as the treasure of our souls. Chapter 5, verse 3. He means a holiness that is dependent upon Christ for the power to do what Christ commands. Chapter 3, verse 6. That is authentic obedience. So don't you see, keeping the commands of Christ was never intended to be the evidence that God should save you. It was only intended to be the evidence that God has saved you. Do you feel the difference? So the question is, do you see any of that in your life? Do you see word-centered, hope-motivated, love-produced, Christ-dependent patterns of increasing obedience and holiness in your life? What I'm asking is, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you love to obey the commands of Christ, even when no one is watching you except God Himself? Do you see in your soul increasingly transformed desires and longings that are only explainable by the miracle of regeneration that you are born again? Because if John were here, he would say, to the degree that you do not see those things, you have every right to question if your salvation is authentic. Which brings me to dynamic number two. Dynamic number two. Disobedience to the demands of Christ displays ignorance of Christ. Disobedience to the demands of Christ displays ignorance of Christ. Now, although this is changing more rapidly than I would care to admit, um, professing Christ in America has really very few negative repercussions, right? Very few negative repercussions for, for being a Christian. There isn't yet a government crackdown on churches. There isn't particularly risky yet to proclaim Christ in public. And again, although this is changing, and it's changing in a rapid pace, we are not yet to the point of hostile persecution for claiming allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, and yet, living in a culture like that, what it does is that in a culture in which there is so little cost for claiming Christ, what that does is create the possibility for make-believers and counterfeits. In other words, living in a culture in which Christianity is reasonably acceptable, you get all sorts of people who think they're saved, and they may not actually be saved. And in America, there are thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of professing Christians who all they know some right answers. They get church culture they know how to blend into a congregation. They've done an altar call. They've prayed a prayer, maybe even been baptized. But even with all that, there is just no life in their soul because they've mistaken cultural Christianity for authentic Christianity. And those are exactly the kinds of people that John describes. Look at verse 4. 
The one who says that I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, notice what he says, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. You know, one of the things I love about the Apostle John is that he dares to say what so few are willing to say. That's not because he's some grumpy old man who has no filter anymore. It's because the stakes are just too darn high to play around and to cater to people's feelings. And you remember there were people here. There were dangerous and deceived people who had infiltrated the church, had crept into the church, and they made these grandiose claims about their experiences with God. And yet, yet, they lived their lives as though obedience and holiness were simply optional. Great if you got it. It's fine if you don't. And yet John grabs the saw of truth and cuts through the bone of that bad theology and without any gimmicks or frills simply declares that's not true. And you notice he's quoting someone. Look at the text. The one who says, I have, we have come to know him. I have come to know him. That's the claim. That's the hypothetical, not so hypothetical scenario in which one might claim to have authentic salvation. And in all likelihood, John is quoting these false teachers and their little groupies who follow their teaching. And the claim was, I have come to know him. We know Christ. We experience Christ. We have a relationship with Christ, they claimed. Which again, is an excellent, incredible thing to claim, isn't it? That's the most important thing to claim in the universe. That's the most important thing in the universe. A satisfying relational connection to the living Christ. I mean, that is the very thing we were made for. The problem is, and you would agree, just because you claim it doesn't mean you actually have it. Because you would admit that we could profess whatever we want about ourselves, but as I've said before, the proof of the pudding of our profession is displayed in the reality of our lives. And that's exactly what John says. Look, what it, look at the text, verse 4. The one who says that I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. John, you can't, you can't say that to people. You can't do that. John, you can't call people liars. What about people in your church, John, who struggle? They really want to grow, and yet their holiness and growth is slow. What about people in your church, John, who agonize in their souls to be holy, and they just need help? How is this going to help them? To which I think John would reply, I'm not talking about those people. He's not talking about people who struggle and fight and sometimes lose and repent and change. He's not talking about those people. Rather, he means those who live a life of willful, ongoing patterns of sin that they knowingly tolerate and secretly justify. He means those who live in nonchalant disregard of the word of Christ. These are people who either pretend to be authentic or they are persuaded that they are authentic and yet the tangible facts of their lives prove them to be the opposite. John says these people are liars. 
spiritual Pinocchios who don't live or tell the truth. In fact, John says these kinds of people, the truth is not in them. It's, it's not in them. Meaning what? Meaning, I think he's referring to Jeremiah chapter 31 and the new covenant. Remember that? When God promised that one day he would write his law on the inside of his people. That his word would be inscribed onto the very souls of his people. That his word would be something inside of his people transforming them from the inside out. This, I believe, is a reference to that. Which means John is saying that if you live in lukewarm lukewarm disregard to the commandments of Jesus, you are still in your sins and you need to be born again. The question is, do you see any of that in your life? Is your faith tangible? Does your life have the palpable evidence of authentic life change and transformation. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. Neither is John. It's just that if you're not breathing or eating and you feel no pain, it's that you have no assurance that you're actually alive. And if you're not fighting sin or hungering for holiness or feeling the pains of repentance when you don't obey, It's just that you have no assurance that you're spiritually alive. So the question is, however slow and painful it may be, do you see the word of Christ slowly carving you into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you see transformed passions and longings and desires for which the only explanation is a supernatural work of grace in your life? Because if John were here, he would say, to the degree that you don't see those things, you must hold out the possibility that you might not actually know him. But you can. You can know him. I mean, that was the entire point of the incarnation of Christ to the planet, wasn't it? So that we could know the living God as the treasure of our souls. That was exactly the point of the entire enterprise. And so if you suspect this morning that you might not actually know him when for years you either tried to convince others or convince yourself that you did, there's no shame in that. There's no shame in that. Aside from your own resistance and hesitancy, there is literally nothing right now holding you back from the treasure of salvation paid in full by the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ. There is nothing. It's a match made in heaven. You are a sinner. He is a savior. You are a sheep gone astray. He is the Lamb of God slain for sinners. He loves sinners and He loves to save them. And right this minute, right now, he stands full of pity, ready to apply the proceeds of his death to anyone who comes to him in repentance and faith. Which brings us to dynamic number three. Dynamic number three, which tells us whether our profession of faith is real or counterfeit. Number three, obedience to the ordinances of Christ confirms the work of Christ. Obedience to the ordinances of Christ confirms the work of Christ. 
Because that's one of the things I love about the Apostle John is that he employs a, the rhetorical power of stating the obvious. You see, John uses this really simple kind of logic that's super easy to understand, and yet it is jolting and bone-breaking in its power. And you can see it in verse 5. Look at the text. He says, But whoever should keep his word, truly in him the love of God has been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Do you see the logical flow from verse 4? If not, keeping the commands of Christ reveals us to be liars on the one hand, then by that simple rationale, anyone who does keep the commands of Christ proves in tangible ways that their salvation is authentic and real. And notice what he says, but whoever should keep his word, literally, be keeping. Be keeping what? What does he say? The word of Christ, and and there it is again. The third verse in a row that displays the supremacy and centrality of the word of God in the life of a true believer. Meaning what? Again, not sinless perfection, but consistent direction. Because were you to chart a believer's obedience on a graph, it would very much resemble Morse code, wouldn't it? With dashes and dots and highly imperfect gaps, because again, Christ alone had the only continuous, unbroken line of obedience. But nevertheless, John wants us to see that the consistent trajectory of our lives and pattern of our lives is one of ever-increasing conformity to the commands of Christ in the Word. And again, I ask you, do you see this in your life? Do you see in your life the Morse code of holiness? with blips and dashes and dots? Do you see word-centered, hope-motivated, love-produced, Christ-dependent life change and transformation in your life? Because what I want you to do for a moment is I want you to focus not on the gaps for a moment, but I want you to focus on the dashes. I want you to focus on the dots and the little blips just for a moment. See, the the point is, if you know Christ, every single tiny dot or dash of holiness in your life is tangible manifestation of the supernatural. You see that, right? That you are born again. That the Christ is at work in your life. No, we shouldn't sin. Yes, it's tragic when we do. But at the exact same time, every act of obedience in our lives, no matter how great or small, reveals the reality of a miracle that has been performed. Not one that you performed, but one that has been performed in and through you. Be encouraged this morning. No, none of us are where we would like to be. None of us are there. But when you see, however incremental it may be, life change and transformation, that is a sign to you. Christ is at work. What this does is raise a question. At least it raises a question for me. And, and, And the question is, all this talk about pursuing obedience and pursuing holiness, what this does is raise the question of the relevance of obedience, doesn't it? I mean, why obey? Why be holy? I mean, what is even the point of that? 
And really the question that gnaws us like little rats is, why is sanctification a painful process that happens over our lifetime, and why is it not something that happens all at once? I mean, why? Why did God ordain that this would be a painful process and agony and fight to the death when he could have just flipped a switch and made us perfectly sanctified, glorified human beings all at once? What is the point of all this? Why a process? Why is it grueling? Why is it war? Why is it a fight to the death? And the answer is, why it's a process and not all at once is because, get this now, the moment by moment dependence upon the power of God for our holiness displays his glory in real time that you would not otherwise see had we been sanctified all at once. In other words, the painful shaping of our lives is a platform to show the watching world that Christ alone is the one who changes people's lives. But notice what John says. Notice what he says about what consistent patterns of holiness and obedience reveals about our lives. Look what he says in verse 5. But whoever should keep his word, here it is, in him the love of God has been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Now again, notice his language is profound, isn't it? Those who keep the word of Christ, he says, in them the love of God has been perfected. Meaning what? Not that our obedience gets the love of God perfected, but that our obedience shows that the love of God has already been perfected. What does he mean, though, by the love of God? What is he saying? What's really profound is if you take a step back and look at the letter as a whole, you see exactly what he's doing. You see, when he says the love of God, what that is, is, get this, it is synonymous with other ways John uses to describe how God has saved you. This is John taking everything God has done to rescue your soul, and and what he's doing is summarizing it, calling it the love of God, because the love of God is exactly the attribute of God that drove him to save you, isn't it? It's a summary way to describe everything God has done to rescue rescue you from eternal woe and despair. Because think about it. In love, he predestined you to adoption as sons. Ephesians 1.5 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. John 3.16 But God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And even when we were dead in his great love, in his great love, he made us alive together with Christ. Do do you see the point? What John is saying is that to be saved by God is to be loved by God by God, and the love of God in our lives is not stagnant. Rather, the love of God reveals itself in a renovated life of real life change and transformation. Why? Because authentic faith is tangible faith. If it's real, you can see it. Which makes us wonder, doesn't it? If that's true, 
If that's true, that the saving love of God reveals itself in a renovated life, then what are the kinds of things that we should look for in our life? What are the kinds of renovations that we should expect to see in our life if we are truly the recipients of the saving love of God? And there are four things, four things that we should see in our lives in some measure or degree if we are truly the recipients of the saving love of God. Four manifestations of the saving love of God in our lives. There should be hunger, there should be love, there should be sorrow, and there should be war. Those four things. Hunger, love, sorrow, and war. Let's take these one at a time. Number one, a saving love of God reveals itself in increasing hunger and thirst for Christ through His Word. The saving love of God reveals itself in increasing, however imperfect it may be, increasing hunger and thirst for Christ through His Word. Because you know the main difference between a make-believer and a true believer? The make-believer finds Christ to be merely useful, but a true believer finds Christ to be beautiful. Number two, the saving love of God reveals itself in love. It reveals itself in love. Love for, for God, absolutely, that's a given. But you see, love also, love and affection for other people and especially, especially for His church. Don't you see, the love of God is most clearly revealed in our lives when we own the spiritual growth of one another as our top priority. That's what John meant when he said, we love because He first loved us. Number three. Number three, the saving love of God reveals itself in sorrow. In sorrow. And by that I mean sorrow over sin. The love of God shows itself in sweet sorrow of repentance over sin that weeps because we have traded God for such worthless substitutes. And number four, the saving love of God reveals itself in war. Reveals itself in war because authentic faith, you understand, is a violent faith. Not violent against other people, but against our own desires that wage war, even in our own soul. Because you remember, Paul told Timothy twice, as a matter of fact, fight the good fight of faith. Romans 8.13, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 1 Peter 2.11, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. J.C. Ryle put it like this. A true Christian is one who not only has peace of conscience, but war within. A holy violence, a conflict, a warfare, a fight, a soldier's life, a wrestling, these are spoken of as characteristic of the true Christian. He that would understand the nature of true holiness must know that the Christian is a man of war. That's how we see the saving love of God in our lives. Hunger, love, sorrow, and war. 
and to the degree that we see these things in our lives, and however imperfect it may be, in increasing measure, that is the assurance that our salvation is real. But notice, notice, it's exactly what John says. Look at the end of verse 5. He says, by this, by this we know that we are in him. By this we know that we are in him. There it is again. We know. We know everything that I just described, John says, is how we know for absolutely certain that we are in him. And isn't that interesting? The language he uses again to describe what it means to be a Christian. He says, we are in him. We are in Christ. That's a really profound description of what it means to be a Christian, isn't it? Because what that means, what that means is that we are connected. We are connected to the Lord Jesus Christ in a living, satisfying union by faith where our lives are inseparably intertwined with His own. I mean, you see, salvation is a matter of simple mechanics, isn't it? You know the lamp is plugged in when the light is on. And you know that someone is in Christ when their life radiates with authentic life change and transformation. Which leads me to a question, and this one's not easy. But the question is, is there anyone in your life with whom you need to have a serious conversation about the state of their souls? Is there anyone in your life, although they claim to be in Christ, that they give no real evidence that their faith is authentic? Do you know anyone like that who has a form of cultural Christianity, but they do not exhibit the kind of authentic life change that, that John describes here? And I know it feels really risky to have these conversations, but this is a risk that we have to be willing to take. Have you had concerns about anyone in your life or in the church or even in your family who, although they name the name of Christ for far too long, they have not revealed the kind of hunger and love and sorrow, and war that would give any indication that their faith is real. And I know all the objections to having these kinds of conversations. That's not loving. That's too harsh. That's judgmental. That's not gracious. To which I reply, well, we can have these conversations graciously. We can have them out of love. And we absolutely should do that. And according to Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, these kinds of conversations are not unloving or ungracious at all. You see, the problem is not that we shouldn't have these kinds of conversations. The problem is we don't know how to have these conversations. We're too afraid to have them. But we must have them when the time is appropriate. Not as our default conversation that we have the second we see someone fail. No one is saying that. No one believes that. But we must have these conversations gently, carefully, compassionately, with tears in our eyes if need be. But we must have them nevertheless. Why? Because the stakes are just too high to simply just assume. And that brings us to the fourth. The fourth dynamic that proves our salvation, profession of faith, be real or counterfeit. Number four, conformity to the character of Christ authenticates union with Christ. 
conformity to the character of Christ authenticates union with Christ. Because you know that facial recognition software is a crazy invention, isn't it? That's a crazy thing. The fact that there is a software capable of recognizing your face while out in public. That if someone wanted to find you, they could. Anywhere in the world that cameras, there's a technology that can pick up the facial features of your face and find where you are anywhere in the world. And believe it or not, there is a kind of correlation to that in the Christian life. There is a kind of savior recognition software how we live and who we are and how we conduct ourselves reveals not just our face, but even the face of Christ himself. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 6. The one who says that they abide in him ought to walk in the same manner that he himself walked. Do you see? If we're going to claim Christ, John says, we live like Christ. We resemble Christ We reflect and portray and display him however marred the image is. We reflect and portray him in our lives. And then, and again, did you notice how John describes what it means to be a Christian? He says, the one who says they are abiding in him. Again, I think he's quoting this new age cult group who had wormed their way into the church. And again, they get it exactly right. They were really, really good at using really perfect biblical explanations for what it means to be a Christian. This is exactly right. They were so good at this. Chapter 1, verse 6, we have fellowship with God. Nailed it. Chapter 2, verse 3, we have come to know Him. Exactly. And here, we are abiding in Him. And they were exactly right. Those are perfect explanations, ways to describe the Christian life. And you see, that's precisely what makes cult groups so hard to spot and so easy to believe because they use the exact right terminology that they should, but by them they mean something completely different. But this is right. This is right. To to be a Christian is to abide in Jesus Christ. And, And you remember this language comes from John 15, doesn't it? John 15, isn't that interesting? This cult group probably read John's gospel. They borrowed his language. And you remember that language, to abide, that is agricultural language, isn't it? Describes that kind of organic connection and bond that branches have to the trees to which they belong. It portrays that inseparable biological union between branches and vines and trees and fruit. That life-giving botanical process where branches are helplessly dependent upon trees to bear the fruit that they are supposed to bear. That's exactly how the Christian life operates. To be a Christian is to have our lives inseparably intertwined with the life of Jesus Christ where he lives his own life in and through us. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who delivered himself for me. Paul defines the entire Christian life as Christos en humin. In Colossians 1.27, Christ in you. 
That's the Christian life. That's what it means to be a Christian. Christos en humin. Christ in you. So the problem is, or should I say the good thing is, is that if someone is truly abiding in Jesus Christ, then you would think that at some level those who abide in him reflect and display who he is, and that is exactly what John describes. Looking at verse 6. The one who says that they abide in him ought to walk in the same manner that he himself walked. Do you see it? This is incredible. All John's talk about obedience and holiness we see here, he's not being legalistic, is he? He's not just talking about keeping the rules or mere external conformity to a code of ethics. Rather, he means, when he talks about holiness and obedience, he means reflecting and portraying the most beautiful and glorious person in the universe, namely Jesus Christ himself. And his point is, it's totally fine to claim the claim of abiding in Christ, however imperfect it may be. And it will be imperfect, because that's exactly why we need an advocate with the Father. But at the end of the day, those who are truly connected to the Lord Jesus Christ in an organic, biological, spiritual relationship, will walk in the same manner that he himself There will be savior recognition software. And what this does is raise the question, doesn't it? How did Christ walk? I mean, if if to abide in him is to reflect and portray him, then the question becomes, well, well, how exactly did Christ live? If we are to resemble and reflect his life, then what should that look like in our lives? How did Jesus Christ live? And the answer is, Entire libraries can be filled with the volumes of who Christ is and what he did. Because here now, here now in Christ is a life of such God-exalting majesty. Here now in Christ is a life of such radical devotion to the Father. Here now in Christ is a life of passionate devotion to the Scriptures. Here in Christ is a life of back-breaking affection and sacrifice for other people. Of such passionate intensity to obey and please the Father. Of such stout-hearted trust in the sovereign power and timing of the Father. Of such unrelenting care and concern for the souls of men such trust and compassion in the face of affliction. Here now in Jesus Christ is a life of staggering moral glory and majestic holiness in every area of his life. Christ was sinless. He was blameless. He was righteous. He was glorious. And John's point is simply this. Look, all I'm saying is if you abide in him, then that means that if your life is inseparably intertwined with his own, in some measure or degree, your life will reflect and resemble him. Because we are Christians, aren't we? Christ ones. Those who increasingly resemble the one who bought us with his blood. And what that tells us is this, and I close with this. 
What this tells us is this, that the ultimate goal of our lives is to become less and less like ourselves and more and more like Christ. Right? Isn't that the will of the Father for our lives? Did he not predestine us to be conformed to the image of his Son? Romans 8.29 The question is, how does that happen? How, how do we become like Christ? I mean, if Christ-likeness is the nature of true holiness, and that is exactly what it is, then how on earth is that supposed to happen? How do we become like Jesus Christ? And the Bible's answer is clear and unmistakable. And the answer is, listen carefully, we become like what we love. We become like what we love. And what we love the most, we will begin to resemble. You see, there is just something about the human soul that we become like that which we worship. Which means to be like Jesus Christ, we must be captivated by Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is clear. To see Christ is to be changed, to be like Christ. Don't you see? We will only be as Christian as our view of Christ is profound. And so what we must do is commit ourselves daily to long, long meditation upon the Word of God to see who Jesus Christ is. Because the more glory we see of who He is, the more our lives will begin to resemble Him. And that right there is the most tangible faith in the world. Let's pray. Oh Lord, these texts cut like steel. They're heavy like granite. They're strong like iron. They're precise as a laser. And yet, Lord, in their own way, Lord, they are warm like the sun. Because with all of our glaring imperfections, and they are glaring, with all of our unfortunate inconsistencies, and there are many that are unfortunate, oh Lord, what this does is push us back to despair and our worthless resources to live the Christian life and to cast ourselves upon you, O oh, our advocate, O oh, our renaissance man of eternal life. To cast ourselves upon you, to take care of the guilt for the sins of the past and to provide the remedy we need for the sins of the present. O oh, Christ, all we want to do is live a life that puts you on display. And we don't have it within us to do that. We are weak. We are people. We are, as Psalm 103 says, we are just dust. And so we cry out to you this morning that you would help us to increasingly resemble your glory, O Christ, and reflect and display you to the world. That's what we want, Lord. We want to become less like ourselves and more like you. Help us. And help us to take the time we need in the word to savor and see and enjoy you. So that the more we enjoy you, the more we begin to reflect you. We ask for that. And Lord, in a world like this, chaotic, psychotic, 
We need that. We need that more than ever. Thank you for this time together. Please use your word in our lives always and only for the glory of Christ. Amen.